Hello and welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Eric Stoyer. Today on the show, we've got Sam Pollard. Uh, I was very excited to talk to Sam Pollard. He's a legendary editor. He's a producer and a, and a director as well. He was the editor on uh, Style Wars, the 1983 hip-hop documentary. He edited Juice. He's edited a lot of the best Spike Lee movies. And like I said, he's also a director. He's made a lot of his own movies, mostly documentaries. You should go check out his long list of credits online. He's got an incredible career and uh, been a part of a lot of amazing projects. I talked to Sam about a week and a half ago, and uh, we discussed his new documentary that he directed, MLK FBI, which looks at the FBI's surveillance campaign of Martin Luther King. It's based in, uh, in large part on some newly declassified documents, and it's all archival footage, but there's a lot of stuff in here I guarantee you haven't seen before. So uh, highly recommend it. It's a terrific movie, and you should definitely go check it out, without a doubt. Send me feedback about the show here at uh, eric at moviemaker.com. And now, Sam Pollard. Where did your research for this movie begin? It started with a book by a gentleman named David Garrow, who had written a book about MLK and the FBI and Jagger Hoover and how they had been monitoring him and surveilling him for many years. So my producer, Benedine, had read the book, and then I read the book after he suggested I read it. And we both came to the same conclusion that this should be a film. And uh, then we reached out to David Garrow, who I happen to have known from him being one of our major consultants when I worked on Eyes on the Prize too. We reached out to David, optioned his book, eventually flew out to Pittsburgh where he lives, took a camera crew to his house, and sat down with him for about four hours so he could really sort of on tape tell us the genesis of the book, the information in the book, the relationship between King and Hoover and the FBI, which really became the framework for the film. And then we went out and did a sizzle reel to try to raise money with the sizzle and the proposal and the budget. It took a little bit of time. And finally, in 2019, the beginning of 2019, two companies, Field of Vision and Play Action, came on board with the funding, which enabled us to shoot the rest of our interviews in the fall of 2019, bring on an archival producer, producers, bring on the editor, and really started the post-production process. And was that book that was was that written before these uh, these documents were declassified? The uh, the FBI surveillance documents. Yeah, they were written, and, and but 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 I think that Garrett had access to some documents, and he had lots of from his research. He found lots of material, and as you might know, he did a an opinion piece. When, when more of these files were released in 2018, that caused a lot of hoopla in the community because they felt he was he was airing some of Dr. King's dirty laundry. How how do you actually access these documents? Um, are they just like on the National Archives website, or, or how, how do you how do you get access to them? It was both the National Archives website and, and some of the, from the Freedom of Information Act. But the thing to remember, a lot of these documents that we received were redacted. So you've had to sort of piecemeal what you felt was going to be important to use in telling the story of King and Hoover and the FBI. But we were able, we you know, like any, you know, documentary that's based on historical research, you have to do your homework. You have to really dig into the material that you get from the archives, both the National Archives and both from the film and television archives that you go to to find the material you need. 
for a lot of people, you know, there's a pretty simple narrative that's been established and that has become the dominant story about uh, who Martin Luther King was as a person. What do you think new information about a figure that looms as large as MLK? What, what do you want people to do with that information? Well, what I want them to do is to be able to see if he was a human being. I mean, that he was complicated, that he had a complicated life, that he was obviously, you know, juggling lots of balls in the air. And uh, so to look at it and just don't see him as this deity. I mean, when I, when I was 18 years old in 68, that was when King was assassinated. I only thought of him as this man who had done the phenomenal I Have a Dream speech and it was leading Black people to be part of the American mainstream. I didn't know anything else about him. You know, so I had no other questions about him. But that's all I've been taught. Most of us are taught to see history, our historical figures in, in a pretty one-dimensional way. And I felt it was important to sort of show him in a multi-dimensional way. And then, of course, you know, the movie's really about also shining more light on the FBI's relationship with, with him. Um, and pe- people have known a lot of this, of course, that the FBI was uh, interested in him, to say the least. But, you know, we here we see that there's just this in- incredible obsession with him and that, you know, and with discrediting him uh, as a person by spying on him and, and exposing aspects of his private life. Uh, what, was the, what was the extent to which you understood this obsession going into making this film? And, and, and what did you learn in the process? Well, you know, I kind of knew about it, but, you know, because I've done a lot of documentaries about the civil rights movement. movement. But, but think of it this way. Hoover's obsession with Dr. King is here he is listening and hearing about a black man who's galvanizing thousands and thousands of African-Americans around the country to say we want, we want, an, equal, equal, we want an equal footing at the table. We want to be integrated. We don't want to sit on the back of the bus anymore. We don't want to have not, the, have, have not have the right to vote. We don't want to have to drink from a colored water fountain anymore. We want to be able to sit in the, in the main part of the theater, not up in the, in the rafters. You know? And for, for Hoover, this was sort of anathema to how he saw African-Americans in American society. We were only considered to be on the fringes of American society. We weren't part of the mainstream. He, like many other Americans, believed there are no racial problems because black people are just, you know, they're accepting of their place and they should be happy to stay in their place in society. So all of a sudden, here comes a black man with other black men and women who are basically raising the ante and saying, America, if you're saying you're the home of the land of the free and the home of the brave, then you should really be doing that, you know? on all levels. And that had to be frightening to Hoover. Had to be, and it was frightening to many Americans. You, you know, it's, it, it's not to think that he was like all of a sudden an anomaly in terms of the American mainstream thinking about black people. He was part of the American mainstream, you know. What do you see the role of a documentary filmmaker in examining material like this as being? And, and how, you know, it, different from, you know, you, you, could, you could have also written a book, you could have, you know, done research and presented in some other way. What does film specifically bring to this to the table here? Here's, here's my how I see my responsibility as a documentary filmmaker to present material to an audience, to raise questions, to have them challenge the perceptions that they've been planted in their minds, like so much has been planted in our minds, and to rethink how we see the world. That's that to me is my responsibility as a filmmaker, and I try to do it as artistically as creatively. As, as professionally as I can, you know. I'm not here to create films where I'm sort of trying to create agitprop, you know. I'm not here to say, I want you to think exactly like this. I'm here to helpfully, hopefully open your minds to have you say, 
hmm, let me question this. What does that really mean? How do I really think about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI? What was that mythology that grew around the FBI? I mean, because for me, Eric, I grew up in America in the 60s where I had one particular mindset. The FBI were the good guys. They were fighting the bad guys. Dr. King was a, was a great leader. That's all I needed to know. Abraham Lincoln emancipated black people. That's all I needed to know. Well, you know and I know that everything in the world is, has much more layers than what's sometimes presented to you. And to me, as a documentary filmmaker, I feel like my responsibility is to try to peel back the layers, peel them back, so you can dig into these things and say, well, okay, who was Abraham Lincoln? Who was Martin Luther King? Who was Jagger Hoover? What about that mythology of the FBI that I grew up you know, admiring when I was a young African-American teenager? Those, that's, what my, that's what I do as a filmmaker. That's my responsibility. You, you mentioned that part of your responsibility is to bring material to people in a way that's, that's creative. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can present information in a story like this uh, tonally in a documentary. You, you could, it, it could be very sensational. It could have, um, you, know, you could be making choices about different kinds of people to talk to. So, so broadly speaking, you know, how, how did you make the choices you made to tell the story this way? The first, the first thing we decided, Ben and Dean, the producer and myself, decided right up front before we even interviewed David, David Gow, was how are we going to make this film? How are we going to present this material? And I had said to Ben, I had seen a documentary around 2011 called The Black Power Mixtape. And it was done by a filmmaker from Sweden. And he had basically documented the 70s, sort of the period of the Black Power Movement and the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton. And he had done it with just archival footage and archival audio. And none of the people that he interviewed were on camera. And that meant Harry Belafonte or Angela Davis or anyone else from that period who spoke about that period, they were all off camera. And what I felt that was really fascinating about that was that it kept me really engaged in the material that was up on the screen. So I said to Ben, that's how we should approach telling this story. And so we knew that we didn't want to have any of our interviews on camera. But if you fast forward just four years, five years later, more documentary filmmakers are doing that today, where they're not having the subjects on camera. I just saw a documentary about John Belushi and other people talking about, yeah, not on camera. There's a documentary about Bruce Lee. Nobody's on camera. I had supervised the edit of a four-part documentary about Sinatra for Alex Gibney, the director. We didn't have anybody on camera. So it's, it's something that I felt that by doing it with this film, again, it would force the audience to really be engaged in the archival footage and the audio from that time. And that was the strategy right from the beginning. You're well known for being uh, an editor and, and uh, including on some of Spike Lee's, uh, some of my favorite Spike Lee films. Um, could, could the style of documentary that you're talking about there, could, could it, someone who's not an editor make, make these documentaries? <laughs> well... You, you can't make a documentary without a, without a good editor who's attuned to your subject and your material and understands what you're trying to do tonally. So if you're asking the question as a director, could I have done this film without being an editor? I would say to you that because I've been an editor for so many years, that my skill set and understanding how to be a director went to another level. Now, it's not to say that there are directors who aren't editors who know how to make films. They do. But I bring to the table my years of sitting in editing rooms, understanding how sequences should go together, how I'm trying to get the most out of the sequence in terms of dramatically or emotionally, you know? So I can 
hopefully, and I'm not sure every other who I work would say this, but I would say that I, I think I, I do a good job at articulating to an editor when I'm directing what I'm trying to get across when they're shaping the sequence for me. <laughs> now, there might be some editors out there that says, now nah, Sam doesn't make any sense when he's talking to anybody. <laughs> You'd have to ask them. <laughs> how, do you, how do you take archival material and you know, reconstruct it in a way that feels new and fresh? You have to look at it. You have to understand what it was used for. And then how do you want to use it to give it another spin, a different, a, a, a fresh take? Now, sometimes you'll take the footage and you'll, and you'll use it the same way that's been used before. And, and because the thing that's built around it is, is much more compelling than just trying to recreate the archival footage. I'll give you a good example. You see how we used the edited the March on Washington sequence at the opening of this film. And I thought that Laura did a wonderful job in sort of shaping the arc of people driving to the, the march on the bus, arriving there, you know, gathering, and then the speech, which we condensed, of King's I Have a Dream speech. You know, so I have edited that footage myself three or five, six, seven, eight times. Now, I had never approached it that way editorially, so I thought it was really good. Now, I just finished another film that's going to premiere on HBO next month about Black artists. And we have a little sequence in there about how Black artists were motivated by what the March on Washington. And we got some of the same footage that you see in MLK FBI. But my editor on that film, he used it in a different way than the way we've used it in MLK FBI because it was only, in, in, that, in this particular sequence, it's only like a minute, minute and a half, where in MLK FBI, it's like a three or four minute sequence. So, you know, you've got to rethink about how to use this switch depending on the context you know, that you're trying to build around it. I imagine that you'd seen a lot of this material before, but but some of it you probably hadn't. And and, and some of it, because you're making a film with it, you're spending a lot of time with it and, and you're kind of you know developing this other kind of relationship with it as you're making choices about how to cut it in. You know, are there things that, that were striking to you about seeing him as a person? Are there new things that sort of came to you as you watched him do his thing. And, and and honestly, being so young when he did it, that's something that I, I think that people maybe <laughs> don't realize. They have this idea of who he was. And then if you watch him in some of these clips, he's like in his 20s. It's just it's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, our archival producer, Brian Becker, and the other archival producer, Sheila Manair, you know, they did their homework in finding, you know, the stuff that I knew about. But then Brian, you know, the archival producer came up with finding some stuff that I had never seen before, never heard before. So for example, I had never seen the footage of a young Dr. King about to be interviewed about the, by the reporter in Montgomery, Alabama. You know, when he says, to put, are we ready? I mean, I never saw that footage before. That's the clip at the very beginning, right? At the very beginning. I had never seen the footage of Dr. King with his wife, Coretta Scott King, and his children playing in this play in this playroom with his parents sitting there. I'd never seen that footage before. I had never heard the material of Dr. King's conversation with Lyndon Baines Johnson, Dr. King, LBJ's conversation with one of his associates about how to treat Dr. King after he's won the Nobel Peace Prize, LBJ's conversation with J. Edgar Hoover about King. I'd never heard that before. I'd never seen the footage of Scotland Yard with James O. Ray in custody. This is material I'd never seen before. So this is one of the things that you hope happens when you work on a documentary that the, the archival team, they come up and they find stuff that you can say, wow, 
wow, this is going to be a revelation, you know, and we had those revelations in this film. Uh, an interviewee in the film talks about the relationship between the FBI's surveillance campaign and the media that uh, that takes information and reports on it. So if I understood the, the quote correctly, it was like saying that the media is on the one hand sort of, I mean, I guess if you want to think about it cynically, almost being manipulated to or, or, or utilized to distribute information. And then it's also complicit in that if it didn't exist as a willing conduit, a channel for this information, then the spying maybe wouldn't get as much of an investment. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, here here's his information that has been gathered by Hoover and his his minions. And their, their agenda is to get this to the press, you know, be it the newspapers or magazines, that they would print it and that they would hopefully, and even to the into television news, that hopefully if they printed this stuff and showed this stuff on television news, it would it would discredit, you know, Dr. King and, and destroy his reputation. Now, what they didn't bank on, you know, and I'm not sure why, they have to ask somebody from those days who worked in the press or worked on television, that the press and the pre- press and the, and the news, news shows didn't take it. They didn't go into people's personal lives and use them like we do today. I mean, they didn't present print that stuff. They didn't show that stuff. So it was amazing that Dr. King's escaped, in my from my perspective, escaped a bullet, you know, because it had to really disappoint Jagger Hoover that he couldn't get any traction with all this, you know, what he called salacious material that he felt he had on Dr. King. What's your feeling about whether we should have info about people's personal lives? You know, should we have it now in a hundred years uh, and, and not now because they're still living relatives? Like sort of what's, where's the, where's the line and when it's appropriate to be thinking about this information being out there in the world? Well, here, I, you know, I think that, you know, we, we shouldn't really care about a person's personal life, you know, because that's separate part, separate from who they are professionally in terms of what their role is in society. You know, what they do behind closed doors should be their business. So we shouldn't we shouldn't be you know like wanting to know about oh what was Dr. King doing with that woman in that hotel room in 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 Selma, Alabama in 1965? Oh my God, with the you know I I don't really care about that. What I would say though is that if these tapes are released, which I'm not sort of I'm not sure, I'm not opposed to, is that I want to hear if the if the FBI didn't edit this stuff, if they kept to the idea that they recorded everything. There has to be on those on those tapes conversations that King had with his associates like Ralph Abernathy or Andy Young or Dorothy Cotton or Fred Shuttlesworth about the strategies that they were about to undertake in these different cities that they went into. You know, they just didn't go in there and just say, well, let's hit the streets. They had to have a strategy. So what were they talking about, you know, before they had, had hit, went out on the streets in in, in, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. What were they talking about before they went out on the streets of Albany, Georgia? What were they talking about before they went out on the streets in Selma? You know, what you know? Were they talking about how to deal with the the the, the SNCC and Soakley Carmichael? Were they talking about how to deal with if they're going to be arrested and how to deal with that? I mean, that that that's what I would want to hear on those tapes if they exist. A lot of times, you'll see people uh, in contemporary times, politicians often, that talk quite reverentially about about uh, Martin Luther King. 
Uh, and it occurs to me, and I'm sure many others, when they when they see some of these uh, people out there talking about him, that they would have been the ones that that hated him in in in, in his era. Is it important for people to remember that 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 he was not loved by everyone? Yes, it is. I mean, even for me, to realize that in '64 when they took a poll, you know, about who was more popular, King or Hoover. 50% of the people that they polled felt that Hoover was more popular, was more popular than Dr. King. I mean, we have to remember that King wasn't so beloved. He was he was considered by Hoover and Sullivan and those in the FBI and other people to be a radical. He was upending the notion of American democracy where lots of white people didn't see any racial problems, you know. So he he was he challenged them. He challenged that whole conception, that whole perception, you know. And then the other thing to remember, too, is, you know, even the popularity that Dr. King had by 1967 has started to really get tarnished when he came out against Vietnam, even within the black community, even within the civil rights community. They felt that King had lost his way. Why is he going off, you know, saying that America shouldn't be in Vietnam? You know, shouldn't he just stay focused on the civil rights movement? You know, he's lost his way. You know, so... He had lots of challenges he had to face. There's something I think about all the time, and and it's I'm sure extremely obvious idea to any uh, any black person. But I, I heard an interview a couple of years ago with Questlove talking about what's so stressful about being black, and it's that it's that not okay to be mediocre. That you're held to this completely ridiculous standard where you have to be exceptional and even perfect. Um, you know, look at the follies and faults of our uh, white. Uh, people who are in power and and how we forgive them and and then I, I it's it's hard not to in the context of watching this movie think about how someone like King would be treated now. Um, so a long winded way into a question about you know what what did you what did you think about how this story uh, what does it have to say about our our current times? It says to me, Eric, that America is. A, <laughs> America is a very hypocritical country, you know, you know, it's, it's very hypocritical. And just look at how Americans, how the, how the, 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 the forces of law and order dealt with the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. And then look at the lack of, of force, you know, when these, these crazy people, Last Wednesday on January 6, 2021, marched down to the Capitol and how easy it was for him to breach the, breach the Capitol and get inside and basically try to destroy it. Look how easy it was. And you know why it was easier? Because the people on the side of law and order who were out there, they looked at those people. Who did they see, Eric? They saw themselves, right? When they were, when, when, when they when the, when the forces of law and order are out there and they see the Black Lives protesters, they see they don't see themselves because those people don't look like them, you know. And that's that's part of the hypocrisy of America, you know, which has been clouded a cloud over this country for hundreds of years, man. And the, and to speak to the other thing you're saying, you know, as a young man growing up in America in the '60s. You know, I was told that same thing. You have to be better. You have to be smart. You have to be intelligent. So when I was 19 or 20 in my early 20s, I would go into a place with white people. I'd carry a book under my arm that was written by like Ernest Hemingway or William Faulkner to show that I could fit in. 
you know, I was a good American, you know. It, being black in America, man, is a constant sort of feeling like, whoa, you know, this is this is a very complex situation that every day we walk, particularly if you if you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to fit in what we used to say fit into the into the mainstream. Sam Board, I mean, I'm a great admirer and I uh, appreciate your time and, and your uh, your your work on this film. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to Movie Maker. You can check us out at moviemaker.com where we post stories every day about movies and movie making and movie makers. Movie Maker's print magazine is something you must subscribe to if you're interested in the art and craft of filmmaking. It's all there. You can follow us on social at Movie Maker Mag and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and say a nice thing or two about us while you're there, would you? We will be back soon with yet another episode of Movie Maker, and we hope you'll be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.